Well, good morning. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was here with you all and I was talking about toothpaste and I was talking about how there's two pe- t- kinds of people in the world. There's people in this world who squeeze toothpaste tubes from the bottom up and we all have established that those are the, the better people, okay, in the world, all right? And then we also established there's free squeezers in this world and they just kind of squeeze wherever they want. So a couple of days later, my wife and I, actually the next Sunday, were given this massive basket Massive basket of toothpaste. I'm not lying. And if you need any, we've got a three-year supply. So this morning, in anticipation of that, I thought we'd just talk about money, all right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But actually, uh, after we were given that basket, uh, just a few days later, my wife and I, we were scholarship to go on a marriage retreat. And we just had a fabulous time. We were given enough money, scholarship, to go to this marriage retreat. And we joined two other lead pastors and their wives. And we were mentored by um, a well-respected mentoring couple in the, in the country. And we went out to Breckenridge, Colorado. I know it was difficult, but I somehow managed to get through it. And Breckenridge is beautiful. If you've never been there, it's a small, quaint little ski village. And there's basically mountains all around it. And we flew out there and we rented a car and we drove out from Denver to Breckenridge, Colorado. And we basically rented a log cabin and we hung out there for a few days with our friends. And we were right on the side of a mountain. I mean, this, the, the, the grade, okay, was, was more like this for the most part. We were three miles, four miles outside of Breckenridge. And on the other side of Breckenridge, we literally saw the mountains from our windows. Beautiful, wonderful wonderful time. We got to ski, but more importantly, we were just mentored in our marriage and we just got to celebrate and just get filled up as a couple. It was wonderful. I was so grateful for it. Well, we have a, we had a wonderful week and then Friday came. It was the last night. We thought, you know what? We're going to go on a date night, Sarah and I. So we go down to the little village of Breckenridge. You heard about this little Italian restaurant and it was at the corner of a real busy intersection in Breckenridge and we park our rental car and we start walking and it starts snowing. The last day had not snowed all week. We had literally gotten a rental car not four-wheel drive because it wasn't snow, wasn't in the forecast. It starts snowing. It starts to dump. It's like blizzard, whiteout kind of conditions. I don't know if you've ever been in that, but it's, it's awesome uh, in a lot of ways, except for when you're driving. So we start walking. It's, it's snowing. We sit at this corner table at this Italian restaurant. I mean, it was perfect, romantic. I'm a romantic guy. I loved it. And we had this wonderful conversation about all the things that we had talked about. And it's snowing. And it's, we're right by a window. And about halfway, maybe three-quarters of the way through the meal, I realized the conditions are getting bad outside. And it's not just snowed a couple inches. It's, probably, it's six, seven, eight, nine, ten inches. I'm not exaggerating. So I'm like, okay, we probably need to speed this up. And just right as I'm thinking that, literally, there's a car parked that I, we can see out the window at a stoplight. And this car, it, it's on a kind of a decline, and it almost slides right into the car that is stopped. And this is, I'm talking like a 20-foot slide. The whole restaurant saw it. I thought, okay, I need to go get the vehicle. I need to go. We need to get back in time so that we don't get caught up in this. So I say, Sarah, pay the bill. I'm going to go get the vehicle. So I trudge to the snow, get the car. And as soon as I get in the car, it dawns on me, no four-wheel drive. That's not a good situation. Lesson learned, as you're going to soon find out. So I get our, all the way to the restaurant with the rental car, pick up Sarah, and we try to get back three or four miles up the mountain back to our log cabin. We get halfway there, halfway there, and we're on an incline like this. I'm not exaggerating. And we just get stuck. We lose all momentum, and we're just sliding. It's like one inch forward, and then we just slide back a foot. I don't know if you've ever been in that predicament before. It's the worst feeling. And actually, all these SUVs are going around looking 
looking like, oh, it stinks to be them. You know, and they're not helping, not helping. And then one lady, literally this little like five foot lady gets out of this massive ranger. Do you need help? I'm like, what do you, I, you're not going to be able to help at all. I appreciate it, but thank you. And she drives off and it sort of sucks. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I back down the hill. I grew up in Ohio, so I'm used to driving snow. I back down the hill, turn into a parking, into a driveway, and we go back to uh, Breckenridge. And we ask around, can we put our vehicle here so that we don't have to, so we can figure out a way to get back to our log cabin. They're like, no, they're going to remove snow. You can't do it here. But, but you can park at the ice rink. Oh, okay, good. So we make our way to the ice rink. We get there. It's, there's about a foot of snow on the ground. We're, at this point, it's been an hour since, and we've been traveling, trying to get three to four miles back to our log cabin. We're a little bit frustrated. And we walk into this ice rink because there's a bus route that goes from the ice rink all the way to our log cabin. So we're thinking, okay, we'll take the bus route because these buses travel all around this area, even in the snow. So we get to the ice rink, we walk in the lobby, and it's packed. We're like, what in the world? Friday night, it's packed in an ice rink. And lo and behold, we step into this like statewide hockey tournament that the, the Colorado Avalanche are putting on. We're like, okay, what, what, what's the deal here? And nobody would help us. Like nobody knew they had buses in Breckenridge. Like, is this going to take us? Is there a bus that's going to stop? And they're like, well, we don't know. And we're like, what is going on? So finally, there's this guy in the corner just standing by himself. And I thought, you know, I'm going to ask him. Maybe he knows. So I go up to this guy. He stands in the corner and said, hey, excuse me. I don't mean to bother you, but we're, we're kind of stranded here. We just need actually a ride back to our log cabin for the night. We're going to leave our car here. And so the guy goes, well, I don't know about the bus ride. I'm not even from this area. I'm like, and he goes, but if you wait to the end of the hockey, my son is about to play in this big tournament the Avalanche is putting on and the winner gets to go to Finland. It's like a big deal. Uh, afterwards, win or lose, I'll take you back. I've got a, a big SUV, no big deal. I look at Sarah and we're like, well, that's the best bet. All right, we'll do it. So we said, what are we going to do for the next hour, hour and a half? Well, we go into the hockey rink and we just end up sitting there. We join all these fans. I mean, there's hundreds of fans, families, and all these people have been traveling. And we're like, just decided, you know, we're just going to cheer for his son's hockey team. So we're sitting there with all these family and friends. No one knows who we are. They're looking at us like, who are these people? And we're like, it's a long story. We're just going to root for the team. And we're, we're rooting, I think it was the Predators, and we're rooting for the Predators. And then we start to understand a little bit of the backstory that half the team didn't get there because of the blizzard, and, and Dylan's coming. And even though they're down by two goals, Dylan's on his way. And so we're like, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan. And, and more people are like, who is it? Who are these people? We're like, don't worry about it. We're rooting for your team. And so, and, and all the while, the guy's supposed to give us a ride. We can't find him anywhere. And he's all by himself in the corner. I'm like, okay, he's alone the whole time. I don't know if this is good. He, there's taking us back to our locker, and then he's going to know where we live. But, oh, well, we're stranded. So what, what are we going to do? So we go through the whole game. Dylan gets there. He doesn't help them win. They lose the game. After the game, we're waiting 20 minutes late into it. He, he goes, hey, I'm going to go get my SUV. He goes and gets his SUV. He pulls it out front. He says, go get in the SUV. We go get in the SUV. Him and his son get in it, and his son goes, who are you? And we're like, long story, all right? <laughs> Sorry that Dylan couldn't help you win, but your dad is going to take us home. So we get in the SUV. He takes us home. And about a quarter, I kid you not, a quarter mile from our destination of our log cabin. It's no big deal for his vehicle. He says, you know, I've been up to this mountain so many times. I thought, oh, that's good to know. He's so familiar. And he says, yeah, I come up here all the time and watch UFOs. <laughs> I'm like, this, this trip's got to end right now, right now. And I'm like, I don't know what he's on. Okay, I know it's Colorado, all right, but I, I, I just, I just want to get out of my cabin. I want to get home. 
And so he lets us out. We get out of that thing. We walk up. We get in that cabin. We have never been so thankful to be home. But, and I don't want to get into a debate today whether you believe in UFOs and the triangles that he actually talked about or not. But we would all agree in this place, no one would disagree with that, that a UFO, whether they exist or not, are known from not of this world. They are extraterrestrial, right? We would all agree with that. They're not from this world. And that's exactly what brings us together today regarding Luke chapter 1. Because the birth of Jesus is not of this world. The birth of Jesus is miraculous. The birth of Jesus is supernatural. And so for Mary, for her to have her first Christmas, it would be supernatural experience. And if you're going to have your true Christmas, not just the gifts, not just the presents, not the family, not the tree, all that other stuff, it's, it's got to involve more. It's got to be out of this world. And for you to understand that, for you to understand that there's forgiveness of sin, for you to understand that you are more sinful than you realize, but even more loved than you even thought you could be. For you to realize that there's transformation in life, that you can live a life that is, that is, that is, is overflowing and abundant from God. The, all of these things, a true Christmas, is, if you will, all can be experienced in this supernatural, miraculous happening. And, and Luke, he records about this supernatural happening. In fact, it's found in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be there if you want to turn there in your Bibles, smartphone or tablet, or uh, maybe the Bible in front of you. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 or 45. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at several different sections in this, this scripture this morning. The first section we're going to look at, if you have your listening guide, you can get it out and you can follow along, is we're going to look at these, these miraculous miracle plans that Gabriel, the angel, is going to tell Mary. Because if, if you're talking about a supernatural event, well, you might as well just throw in angels, right? Because they're all divine. They're all supernatural. And then we're going to look at how Mary, she kind of has a little bit of mistrust. And then finally, we're going to look at this viewpoint that changes when Gabriel talks to Mary. So why don't you look at it with me, verse 26. We're going to begin. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, this Mary's cousin, supernatural pregnancy, crazy, we talked about last week, God sent the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel, who is Gabriel? He's a divine angel, a divine being. He is literally in the presence of God. And you can just maybe imagine the conversation. He's hanging out and God says, hey, Gabriel, I need you to go to earth. I need you to tell my message of hope to this young girl who's going to carry Jesus. Yes, sir, my king. When? Just a moment, Gabriel. Okay, just a moment. Now, hey, king, where do you want me to go again? I want you to go to, I want you to, go to this little town, this little hick town, actually, in the, in the area of Galilee. When, king? Uh, right? Not yet. Not yet. Now, Gabriel, he goes. He goes to the, a little town, as Luke records, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Verse 27, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So he, she's pledged to be married. Another translation would be he's bet she's betrothed, meaning that she's basically engaged. And how it would happen in this culture is that that the father of a son would go out when he, the son was ready to get, the, he, to get a bride. The, the father would go out, pick 
the bride out for his son, and he would go to the, 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 the female's father and say, hey, I, I want this woman to marry my son, and there would be a, uh, an agreement financially. And the reason why there was an agreement financially, because in that culture, that, that, that father was losing a daughter and losing help on his farm or whatever the case was. And so this agreement would be made, and then technically they would be married, but they would not be involved sexually, Okay. And if they got involved sexually or if they got involved sexually with someone else, there was grounds for divorce or even it, or there was even possible stoning. So this is a big deal. And, and typically the, the girls were 13 to 15. This wouldn't fly in my household. I already told my girls, I have a four or six-year-old, that they have to be at least 30 before they can begin to date. All right. So there's no way this would have happened to my, my kids. All right. And, and verse 27 says that she was a virgin. So that she wasn't sexually active, that there was no, nothing going on. She'd never been with a man. And Luke makes this very, very clear. He mentions this multiple times in this chapter, okay? And, and it reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we talk about this uh, verse a lot around Christmas time. We're going to put it on the screen for you. I want you to read it real quickly. It says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with you. God present with you. And this is important. The virgin birth is so foundational. It's so critical. And when Scripture points out that, as Luke would meticulously point out, that she is a virgin, both Luke and even the prophet Isaiah are making the point to you today and to all human history that this was critical for the doctrine, for the, the preciseness, for, and pivotal for the belief of Christianity. There's several implications to this. First of all, that, that, if she was that if Jesus was born of a virgin, I wrote this down in my Bible, there was a miraculous nature to Jesus, that he was divine. Second of all, that he was sinless, meaning this, that if he is sinless, then he can be a perfect atonement for a sinful world. And if he is supernatural, and if he is sinless, which we really believe he is, and we state our, our, our Christology upon, then his death would provide salvation and his resurrection would prove all of it was true. And this is so critical to this Advent season, that he is deity, that, that Jesus Christ is king, that this miraculous, not from this world moment was true. Look at verse 28 and following. It says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. You, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now this word favor, the angel says, hey, you're, you're favored. Don't be afraid. And this word favor, it's actually kind of a cousin to the Greek noun charis. And charis means grace. And grace means unmerited favor. And what all this is saying is, is that she has been given grace. There has been grace bestowed upon her. Now, this is important to note, and I want you to, to think about this, that Mary is not dispensing grace, that Mary is not giving out any kind of blessing, but God is giving the blessing to her. And that's why the angel says, look, you don't need to be afraid. You, God is giving this to you. God is giving this to you. He's with you because what the prophet said, he is, he is with you physically, and he's also going to be with you forever. Phenomenal. 
And the angel continues in verse 31. He says, you will receive, there's going to be a miraculous conception and give birth to a son and you're going to call him Jesus, which, which literally means the Lord of salvation. And what's so incredible here and what she should re realize, and I'm sure she probably did, all the plans she had, they're all been canceled. But I, I don't think any of her plans were this big. Here's why, because she's from this little two-bit Hick town in the middle of nowhere. The dialect from, from the Galilee area was made fun of. They, 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 they weren't clean Jews. They weren't the ones that everyone looked um, highly esteemed to. This was like in the middle of nowhere, didn't get much education kind of place. And here God is choosing Mary. Unbelievable. Verse 32, the angel continues. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Now there's a couple things I want you to just point out. If you're looking at this verse, the angel points out about Jesus Christ. If you want to just circle a few words here, the first one is he's going to be great, that he's going to be not just above average, but he is going to redefine everything, that he is awesome, that he is literally, the word means mega. And this is important because in contrast to a broken world, in desperation for something that's great, here is the real McCoy. And here's why this is important. Because Ray can't save Ray and you can't save you. You can't work your way to Christ. You can't work your way to God. But this great God has done it and made a way for you to have a relationship with him. The second thing that uh, I want you to look at is circle the phrase, the son of the most high. The angel said, he's going to be son of the most high, that he is Jesus Christ, that he, he did not become Jesus Christ, that he was not created, but he was put in Mary, in her womb. He would put on flesh that he always, note, he was always God that he was in a complete equality with the Father. Is a, the Trinity, this is perplexing. This is beyond our mere comprehension, that he is without comprehension. At the same time, he is completely equal with God. He's the son of the most high here. And then finally, the angel said, uh, the throne of his father David, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And then finally, his kingdom will never end. Unbelievable identity of Jesus Christ. The angel is just speaking to Mary. Now, what, what does this, all this mean? Well, for, for us today, just as it meant for Mary a few thousand years ago, there's a few things that we can glean from. The first life lesson, if you have your uh, your, your listening guide, I'd love for you to get it out and you follow along. Uh, the first life lesson, I just wrote it down here in my Bible, says this, that miracles are monumental for Christianity. That miracles are monumental. They are foundational for Christianity. A young virgin is told that she's going to be carried, the literal, the God of the universe. This is miraculous. This is not of this world. And friends, if you're going to stand before people and you're going to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and you follow this God and this God has saved you, are you basing that upon wishful thinking? Are you basing that upon things that you just kind of hope for? Or are you basing that upon historical fact and reality? There's a difference. You can believe that you can fly. You can go up to the tallest tower in Louisville. You can jump off thinking you're Superman. 
But your life will end prematurely if you do that. You can sit here and you can think and wish that I'm going to preach, I'm going to stop preaching in two minutes. But my friend, you, you're just wishful thinking at that point, right? <laughs> There's a difference between wishful thinking and historical reality. There was a preacher who would once tell his, his kids all the time uh, these stories and he would tell a fairy tale and he would begin the fairy tale and he would say things like, once upon a time in a, in a land far, far, far away. And he, you always begin a fairy tale like this, but, but when it's historical, when he would tell a Bible story, you know how he'd begin it? A long, long time ago. There's a difference, friends. There's a difference. Larry King, famous talk show host, one time said this, that he said that if he could be convinced that the virgin birth actually took place, that he believed was the pivotal point of Christianity, he would believe and follow this Jesus. Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite authors, he would actually hear um, uh, Larry King say this and he would call up Larry King. Larry King, is this true that you said this? And Larry said, yeah, I'm not joking. If, if the virgin birth can be proved to me, then I will too become a follower of Jesus Christ. And Larry's right. This is pivotal. This is so important to our doctrine, to our faith, to everything we believe in. But it's not only the pivotal, miraculous moment that we believe in. It's also, uh, we have to look to the, the, the uh, resurrection. That the resurrection would take place and the resurrection would prove in the virgin proof. It would prove in the sinless, divine nature of Jesus Christ. And it would make a way for salvation. Then in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the apostle Paul, he just wasn't blowing wind but he was actually stating a purpose. He was stating a point. He was stating the truth for all mankind. In Romans chapter 10, verse nine, I'll put it on the screen for you. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That this is so important to your life. This is monumental. Now, the second scripture we're we're going to look at here is it's just in this verse 34. And here we're going to find Mary's mistrust. Look at it with me. She mistrusts. She says, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? This miracle, this virgin birth, this crazy life transformational world impacting moment. It's difficult to comprehend, believe. Would you have had any trouble? I'm telling you right now, the miracle of the virgin birth, how incredible as it did, as it would have been, Mary's mistrust is seen right here. Her doubt. She's a little bit skeptical. And, and I don't blame Mary in this moment at all, because I'll tell you what, I've been there. I think we've all been in her shoes at one point or another where we had mistrust, where we had doubt in God. And that leads me to the second life lesson there in your listening guide this morning, that there will be moments of mistrust in the miraculous. See, there's an old quote, and I love it. I wrote it down. It says this, he who never doubted, never thought. Have you ever mistrusted? Have you ever doubted? Have you ever mistrusted? Have you ever doubted God? Has there ever been a moment? Has there ever been a season? Has there been, maybe it's been a lifetime for you. Maybe you had this brilliant teacher. He or she wasn't not a believer of Jesus Christ. And they were incredibly brilliant. And they led you to a point to believe that this Jesus Christ, this pivotal character in all of human history was just that, a character. He was a good teacher, but nothing more. That he was just a childhood myth. 
Maybe you find yourself questioning the identity of, of Jesus. Maybe today you find yourself questioning the uh, authority of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture. Maybe you find yourself today just thinking, you know what? Uh, for so many years, this God that I believed in, I followed, and I, I, I was a part of a church, a local community, a reflection of the body of Jesus Christ, but now I find myself completely down. I've come here today. I haven't been to church in a long time. And you know why? Because doubt has crept in, and I mistrust God. And you feel guilty about it. In fact, you feel so guilty, in fact, that you don't even want to talk about it. Well, my friend here, I just want to encourage you today. This is just between you and me right now, okay? If you've ever been in this place, maybe you're in this season right now. I know exactly how you feel. I grew up in a, in a family that went to church. We went to church on Wednesdays, Sundays, Sunday nights, and every other day. We were the first ones there and the last ones to leave, okay? And let me tell you, I, from an early age, I just began to mistrust and doubt God. I, there, I, I just didn't, I, I, just, I just thought it was a big money-making scheme. I'll just be honest with you. And the funny joke is here I stand today on this stage. But I'll, I'll never forget, I mistrusted and I doubted God. And then uh, God supernaturally moved in my life at the age of 17. I'll never forget it. He, he was so clear in speaking to me and calling me out and seeing my life completely transformationally changed. And, and I'm still a work in progress, folks, but God's the doubt just ran from my life. Now, fast forward, I go to graduate school to become a, to become a full-time vocational pastor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Dallas, Texas. I'm there, I'm working two jobs, I'm going to grad school, I'm single, I'm lonely, and I'm saying all of these mysteries of Scripture. And guess what? Doubt and mistrust creeps into my life. I'll be honest with you, so there was a few tests. I sat there taking these tests thinking, all of this is a lie. What am I doing? Once again, it had crept into my life. But then God once again proved, it proved himself to me over and over and again. Okay, fast forward in my life a little bit more. And my wife and I, Sarah, we're, we're married and, and she gets pregnant. And then she has an ectopic pregnancy. And there was that moment of doubt. And a little bit later on, we went through some horrific financial struggles. And there was a little bit of doubt. And all through this time, I doubted. And I felt guilty about it. And maybe that's where you feel right now. Let me tell you, friends, take comfort. You're not alone. Did you know that the very brother of Jesus, James, he doubted Jesus? Did you know that Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, doubted Jesus? Did you know that Gideon, one of the most... Incredible characters of the Old Testament doubted, God, you're not alone. And I want you to know that there's an, an, an intellectual credence in following this Jesus, that even there, though there may be doubts, you can base your life upon this virgin birth. Did you know that some of the greatest minds the world has ever seen in, 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 in the past and in, even today follow this Jesus? C.S. Lewis who was once an atheist, he would write a book entitled Miracles because he realized these miracles were true. So if you're a doubter today, if you're seeking, if you're mistrusting, this is a very safe place to be. And that you would, would we, I'd love to engage you in a conversation or a cup of coffee anytime. You can reach out to me, you can email me, tap me on the shoulder. I'd love to talk with you, I promise you. I'll sit down or maybe one of our elders or other pastors or staff, we'd love to engage you. This is a safe place to dialogue. Or maybe here today, you're not doubting 
or you've, you've not mistrusted God, but right now you know someone who is. My friend, you can be an encouragement to them right now where you are. You know that? That you can come alongside of them. You can speak life into them. You don't have to be a know-it-all. You don't have to just uh, talk all the time, but you can lovingly walk beside them in their season that you, my friend, could be the miracle they need. You know, there's a really simple, easy way to be a miracle for somebody. And that's just a simple greeting. That's just a simple handshake. That's a simple act of love. You know that, that miracles begin in our parking lot? They, they, they take place in our lobbies and our hallways. Did you know that? That every single solitary Sunday, we have dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of volunteers who say hello, who hand out a bulletin, who say, we're glad you're here, who engage in dialogue, who say, hey, how can I help you? Who walk beside people who are doubting, who are struggling. And those people, my friends, are people that you can be. You can be a part of that. And we're, right now, as thousands of people are going to cross our doors at Grayson to come onto this campus, you could be a part of just, you know, being a miracle for someone else. Maybe you've been visiting. We'd love for you to jump on and say, you know, I'd love to be a part of that. Or maybe you're a part of this church and you're not serving right now. We'd love for you to jump on board. We'd love for you to be a part of our first impressions. The very first impression that can encourage people in the middle of their doubt. And we need your help. If you would... If you'd be willing to do that, if you would be willing to step up and give just a little bit of time on a Sunday morning to that, we'd love to talk to you. That um, Corinne Nesmith, she's going to be out in the lobby afterwards. She runs point on her first impressions. She'd love to talk to you about that very there. You can put it in your, your Connect card and turn it in. And the third section in Luke's gospel I want to look at this morning is uh, really this number three, the Gabriel's viewpoint of God. It moves Mary. Look at it with me in verse 35 and following. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, meaning that he's going to come on you and he's going to do something supernatural through the Spirit of God. Verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. Another translation, maybe some of you have heard it before. I wrote it down here. It says, nothing will be impossible with God. What if as a church we believe that? What, is it with, what if as a church we actually moved and lived as if there was a God who nothing was impossible? What if we, as a, as a family of faith, would encourage those who are following Christ that nothing is impossible with God. The, the angel tries to encourage Mary, doesn't he? He says, look, the Elizabeth, she's pregnant. What? Elizabeth's pregnant? My cousin? Yeah, Elizabeth's pregnant. I know it's a miracle. And if Elizabeth can be pregnant, then Mary, you can be pregnant. Mary, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing, not one single thing done can be undone or undone can be done with God, the God of the universe. Mary, nothing is impossible with God. How does Mary respond? Look at it with me, verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And she says, servant. She mean, and, and she actually used the word, I'm, I'm the Lord's slave. I, I, I'm willing to do God's will. I surrender completely. Whatever he wants, yes, sir, I am at that. Even though it would have been scandalous, even though she probably, maybe likely would have been stoned, 
I'm the Lord's servant. Verse 39, at the time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Mary left Nazareth, traveled three or four days to, to Judah, real close to Jerusalem. She entered the house of Zechariah in order to see Elizabeth, her relative who she just found out had been pregnant six months. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She understands the power of the Spirit of God that Mary is carrying Jesus Christ. As soon as they found, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. There's John in the womb of Elizabeth, paving the way already as we studied last week about Jesus Christ. Verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to to her. What an incredible scene. What an incredible scene of joy. Now, I I just want to go back real quickly to Gabriel's viewpoint. So basically, Gabriel, he comes to Mary and he says, hey, young girl, I got something to tell you. And here's what I'm going to tell you, that you are going to carry the son of the most high God, that you are a virgin. You've been a good girl, but let me tell you, you're going to do something the world has never seen before and is impossible. And let me just tell you that Gabriel's God is bigger than my God and maybe even your God. I mean, after all, he has seen God create man from dust. He has experienced God flow iron to the surface of water and bring an entire nation to repentance. He has seen God move mightily by sending a chariot that is on fire to earth to to grab a hold of a prophet and take him home. He has seen a shepherd boy with the power of God sling a rock, fall a giant, and turn an entire nation's sights forward. This is Gabriel's God, and, and Gabriel's God is much bigger than mine. I had a mentor one time ask me, hey, hey Ray, what's the, size of your, who's the, what's the size of your God? And before I could answer, he said these words, the size of your God determines the size of everything. And it's always impacted me so much so that I've shared that multiple times, even with us at Graceland. And Mary would understand this. Later on, she would sing a song out of joy, out of understanding how big God is. Look with me in verse 49. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. And that just leads me to the final life lesson this morning. Look at it with me. The size of your God determines the size of everything. The size of your God, friend, determines the size of everything. Here's a question for you that I want you to ponder. How big is your God? Here's another question. Is he more brilliant? Is he smarter? Is he bigger? Is he more powerful? Is he stronger in your life? Is this God that God? The psalmist seemed to think so. He said, you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people and the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. This is God. Now, I've seen this illustration before. I think just it's a perfect way to illustrate this. So I've asked my friend Reuben Nesmith to come on up here. Reuben, if you could just come on up and um, you just stand just 
just come on up here and just maybe stand right over here for me. Give him a hand as he comes on up. Now, now Reuben, just, just stay right there. Now, now Reuben, okay, you can already tell, okay, that, that Ray and Reuben aren't the same size. There's not a quality r- right here, right? We'd all agree with that. Now, now, as I walk closer to Reuben, the size comparison is drastically seen, correct? I mean, he's 6'6". Six, six, yeah, exactly. He's 6'6", six, six, and I'm 5'10", in the mornings, okay? Like, that's, that's the deal. Now, I, I use this illustration, you may be thinking, okay, why would you compare yourself to a guy this tall? I mean, it makes you look small. It makes you look a little puny. Why would you do that, okay? Here's, here's the reason why I would do that, okay? I can choose to stay away from Reuben. I can choose to live my life the way I want to live it, stiff-arming Reuben. But here's what I'm going to miss out on. I'm going to miss out on his friendship because he's a really good guy. I, I, he's, he's funny. He's smart. He's a good friend. We have a lot of good laughs. We like college football. We like a lot of the same things. I'm going to miss out on the fact that he has a lot of good friends. I'm going to miss out on his community of people. Also, Reuben, he serves as one of our elders, serving to guard our church as a whole. That In essence, that Reuben is an authority figure in our church. I'm going to miss out on all of those things. And finally, if I need a good basketball team, I'm going to miss out on a great athlete right here. All right? If I need a good W. Now, Here's the thing, the thing that's going to keep me apart from him is my pride. Wanting to do my own thing so that I don't look bad, so that I don't feel unequal. All right, go ahead and give Reuben a hand as he gets us back down. Now, here's why I say all that. Here's why I say all that. That sin, sin and pride and arrogance keeps us distant from a big God. And the closer that you get to a big, big, incredible, awesome God, the more you're going to realize you're sinful, the more you're going to realize that you're unequal, the more you're going to realize that you're not pure as as he is, the more you're going to realize that you are inadequate. The, the, The closer you get to God, and the further you get away from maybe some of your friends, the more you're going to seem un a lot less intellectual the more you're going to seem like, what's he doing following this God? There's going to be all these things that happen. But my friend, if you inch away from God and you let your pride get in the way, you're going to miss out on so many things that he offers. The shepherd would say this, that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. There will be dark valleys. And if you don't walk with God, you have much to fear. The Apostle Paul in Philippians would say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, the closer we get to God, the more we realize that he is a God that is unbelievable and awesome. And as we get that close, we realize everything else is much smaller. So could we be a people? Could we be a people that would live like this so that a watching world with everything else is broken and everything else seems to be chaotic, could we be a people that would live like a God who is that big?